Our reading this morning is from Genesis 1, the first book of your Bible. First verse of your Bible, Genesis 1.1. So if you turn with me there. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw the the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the, the darkness night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. We're going to move down to verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, And to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished and all the hosts of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day for all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Well, we, um, as we turned over this new chapter in the life of two rivers uh, back in, uh, in February, we went back to basics. We went to the story of Jesus, and we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we're going to pick that back up again next year and finish out the Gospel of Mark. But we're going back even further now <laughs> to the very beginning, because uh, there's so much in Genesis that is essential for us to understand as Christians. Uh, and it's certainly important if you're not a Christian and you're here to help you understand what it is that the good news of Jesus is even all about. And so this is essential stuff for all of us. So let's go to Lord in prayer and, uh, and think about this first chapter of Genesis. Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your Spirit. We know that you speak to us in your Word, and we know that it is the Spirit that works in our hearts through it, so that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts and minds to understand how wonderful 
your grace is. How spectacular your power is. And how deep your love is for all that you've made, and especially for your children. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Genesis 1 is this amazing prologue to the whole Bible. It's the beginning. It's the setup for the story. The stage is being set. Yet Genesis 1 is also this place, and probably because of that fact, that there are all these contested issues. So all of these questions that come up about the potential conflict of faith and science arise and, you know, right away in these chapters. There are scholars who have noticed some connections between this story and ancient Near Eastern mythologies, and so questions about the legitimacy of the Bible, or at least its divine authorship, come up right away. Questions about ethics and how we care for the world, and perhaps ways in which Christians have botched that over the years, come up again and again. The very question of how a good God that is in control of everything has ended up with this, e- this world filled with evil and suffering and death. All of these things come up in these early chapters. We're going to touch on a few of them. We're going to spend like four weeks at least, <laughs> I think, in chapters one and two. So there's a lot we're going to unpack over four weeks. We will touch on all these different issues, but let's not miss the main thing. And this is so essential to understand about Genesis 1 in particular, is that this is given so that we would know God. So that we would know Him. And so this morning, we're going to think about God. We're going to think about His power, His purpose, and His presence. What God is showing us in Genesis 1 is His power, His purpose, and His presence. So, Let's think about his power. And look at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And what we're being given here, and it's easy to miss, and maybe even especially easy to miss if you have been around the Bible for a long time, is a biblical cosmology. You are given a map of what the universe is like. That there are two dimensions to reality. There is heaven and there is earth. There's two dimensions to God's creation. Heaven and earth. And then it goes on in verse 2. And the earth was without form and void. So all of our attention in one sense is going to be drawn towards what's going on on the earth. But something interesting is happening. Where is the story being told from? We're watching what will happen to the earth, but we're being told the story from the perspective of heaven. This is an important detail. Don't miss this. Because heaven, if we look throughout the rest of the Bible, we learn some interesting things about heaven. On the one hand, the Bible will talk about the heavens above, meaning the sky, and then heaven being above that. So there's a vertical description often given, right? Uh, that, That God is above everything. But in other ways, and in other important moments, we find that the heavenly dimension is revealed in and around us and through us. So that, for example, in 2 Kings 6, uh, the prophet Elisha sends his servant out 
They're in a besieged city, and he looks out and he sees, his eyes are opened, and he sees the heavenly reality of God's troops that have surrounded the besieging army. And they don't know it. No one else sees it. Or Isaiah 6, a passage that we mentioned a number of times in our Mark series, but this moment when the prophet Isaiah is called, and he's in the temple, and suddenly his eyes are opened, and he sees God there on his throne. And in fact, that image of heaven as God's throne room is the dominant image. The heavenly dimension to reality is God's throne room. And that's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer that God's will would be done where? On earth as it is in heaven. On earth as it is in heaven. Because heaven is his throne room. Heaven is where God, the king of the universe, openly declares his intentions about what's going to go on. And the book of Revelation is really instructive for us thinking about Genesis 1. Because Revelation plays on this idea of what goes on in heaven and how it works out on earth. And in fact, what's fascinating about that is sometimes it's, it's difficult to understand. Because on the one hand, for example, we're told the saints are triumphing in heaven. But on earth, what does it look like? They're suffering. There's a correspondence between God's will. But exactly what it looks like on earth is sometimes not entirely clear. But it is clear to God. Now this is really important because this sets up what is going on. You see, if we understand that we're in heaven, then the whole passage starts to make a lot more sense. Because what do we hear but a series of royal declarations? We didn't read all of the days just for the sake of time, but each day it opens with God saying, let there be, let there be. And it is. Right? He speaks, he, he makes royal declarations, let these things be. Even the seventh day when God rests makes a lot more sense. Because God's not tired. God doesn't need a nap. That's not the idea. Rather, he is a king who has established his kingdom, and so he goes into royal session. He sits on his throne to govern, to rule. So the whole image that that we may miss, if we're not paying attention, is that actually we're in God's throne room. As all of this is unfolding, the perspective we're given is from heaven itself and God in control over everything that comes to pass. This is helpful, actually, I think, even in dealing with some of those questions we have about like the length of the days and stuff of creation. These are big debates Christians have had for years and years and years. And certainly... You know, that what, we're, what we learn here is that there's absolutely a correspondence and God is absolutely in control with what, of what happens on earth. But, if we're, but we have some freedom to reflect on what we learn in creation and try to figure out exactly what the <laughs> is length of days. Now, it's totally possible that they are discrete 24-hour days. It's also possible that they're not, that the correspondence is not exactly the amount of time. Either way... What we're learning is about the power that God has over his creation. That is never out of his control. 
In fact, this is one of the things we learn as you go back and you read some of these ancient Near, Near Eastern mythologies. Um, I'm sure you're all doing that, right? Um, as your homework. Uh, that some of them are really tedious and bizarre. I won't, <laughs> there, some of them are very strange. But there is a focus in all of them on the, or, on the order of the world being established often by the gods or sometimes a specific hero among the gods. Right, one who's, who sort of triumphs over them. Uh, a well-known, at least in certain circles, version of this is the Babylonian tale known as the Enuma Elish. Those are first words of, the, of the, this tablet. Anyway, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter. But Marduk is the, is the god of Babylon. And what he does is conquers chaos, which is, uh, which is personified in this dragon known as Tiamat, that he slays and then rips its carcass open and makes the world out of its body parts. Kind of gross. Uh, but, that sta- but what's fascinating is while we see here concern about orderliness and some of those other things, it stands in stark contrast to all of those mythologies in that God has no rival for his power. There is no forces of chaos that God has to strive against. No, instead, what happens? God speaks. And it is. And God's Spirit is there presiding over this whole thing, hovering. (laughs) That's the image. It's it's almost like a bird. This is the ancient world. Nothing else is up in the sky except birds. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, almost like a bird, you know, Hovering over the creation. So by his word and his spirit. There's no rivals for his power. There's, no, there's nothing he's, God's struggling with to make the world the way he wants to make it. No. No, the world is his. And it is all under his control. And this is so important for us to understand in our own time, right? Because it is often assumed that because we can't prove God scientifically, or, well, some people think they can disprove God's existence scientifically, but of course, all this is insisting that God is outside of space and time, outside of matter and energy, and so I don't know what on earth a proof would look like. But what we are saying is that God's power, then, is above and beyond all of these other forces at work in the world. And in fact, the Bible insists on this throughout, in a whole host of different ways, that God is so powerful that he can give his creation its own life, its own integrity, as as it is. He gives agency to his creatures, right, that they can decide what they're going to do that they are able to think for themselves and to act and all these things. And yet for all that, still, this is still not out of his control. That God's power is so great that it's never in competition with our actions, with the laws of physics or chemistry or anything else. No, that God is still in control. He is greater, he is beyond that. that is, it's a little bit like insisting that, you know, Hamlet didn't make his own decisions. It was Shakespeare 
that made the decisions for him. Well, I mean, of course, Shakespeare's the author, right? But at a different level, at the level of the drama that's playing out, right? Of course, Hamlet is the one in charge of what he's doing. There's, these are fundamentally different orders of understanding of what it means that God is in control. God is at work. His power is so grand to allow freedom, allow decisions, allow the laws of nature to work out, and yet, never outside of his control. This is profound. And incredibly practical. Because this is clear. Your life, my life, is never out of control. Never out of God's control. You might, your life might feel like it's out of control to you. It might feel like you're on a freight train with no brakes, heading downhill, and you have no idea how to get this thing under control. You might feel like you're stuck in the mud with no way to get out. Like you're in quicksand and every little movement just sinks you deeper. You might feel that way about your life. There might be a whole host of forces outside of your control operating on your life. Are you a student? You know what this is about, right? Like are you trying to get back to school? Are you some of your teachers too, right? Like a lot of us are parents wanting our kids to be back in school, also not wanting them to get sick. What are we doing? Our life feels out of control, but it is not out of God's control. That for all that, it is not out of his control. We have a big national election that always, you know, it always feels out of control, right? Like, I've always lived in, I've always lived in a state my whole life that was pretty solidly voted one way or the other. I've never, <laughs> you know, it's like, it always kind of felt like, well, I just know which way this is going to go, at least insofar as I can vote. Does this feel out of control? It's not out of God's control. Maybe it's your finances. Maybe it's your relationships. Maybe it's all of these things. It is not out of God's control. That God knows everything that will come to pass. He knows everything at work in your life. That not a bug crawling across your porch does he miss. Nothing. One of the things we're being reassured of over and over and over again in the Bible, and is so crystal clear here in Genesis 1, is that God is in control. He was from the get-go. And even as we move on in the story and we get to the fall, as we get to the entrance of sin and suffering and death, God is still in control. So God is powerful, but he also has a purpose. We were in verse 2. We've gotten to verse 2, people. Verse 2. Uh, the earth was without form and void. The earth was without form and void. 
There's a little Hebrew uh, rhyme here, tohu wabohu, without form and void, or no form to it and nothing filling it. It was, this gets translated a bunch of different ways, but you get the idea, right? There was no structure, and there was nothing there to occupy it. And so, right from the beginning, God's telling us exactly what he's going to do. And so for three days, he gives it structure. He creates day and night. He separates the sky from the sea. He creates land and plants on day three. So for those first three days, he gives structure to it. For the next three days, he fills it. So he fills the, the darkness and the light with stars and the sun and moon. He fills the sky and the sea. And then he fills the land with all land animals and humanity. You see what he's doing, right? God's got a purpose. He's got intention with the way he's, he's going about doing this. He gave it form and then he filled it. And even as he creates the living creatures, right, you hear over and over again, he creates, he creates them all according to their kind, right? That, that there's a, this isn't a chaotic mess. <laughs> that God has even arranged for all the living beings on the earth to have a kind of orderliness to their life. God has intention for every species. And so, too, God, ha- God you know, crowns his intention with the seventh day. Get back to that Sabbath again, right? Where God has sat down to rule and to reign because, on the one hand, the work is finished. All that he has done is finished. Right? He has established his kingdom, and so he sits on his throne. But on the other hand, it also cues us in that this is just the beginning. This is just the stage being set for the drama that's going to unfold. The drama that is the rest of the Bible. <laughs> right? This is, it is both the... It expresses his purpose in completing creation, but it also expresses his purpose in this drama unfolding. John Calvin used to be fond of referring to creation as the theater for God's glory. As if God has... On his throne, has established this. He's going to watch this play unfold. Again, not one that he's in control of, but his whole purpose is to set the stage. He's written the script. He set the stage, and it's going to play out. God's purposes are never thwarted. And this cuts against the dominant vision of reality that we are taught and told over and over and over again. That our lives came from an accident and that when you breathe your last, it disappears. That you came from nothing and you go to nothing. And the Bible's insisting the opposite. And in fact, that kind of argument insists on being called something scientific. But there's an irony there that the great minds that established modern science all thought just the opposite. 
They all thought the world was purposeful. Most of them were Christians. They thought that, in fact, the whole thing would have been a dumb idea if the world itself wasn't made with purpose. I mean, how on earth were we supposed to find order in it if it was not? And more than that, more than that, that we are able to make sense of it. That the world itself is intelligible to us. It was all because they presumed, of course, that the world itself was purposeful. And again, not every scientist, of course, denies this kind of thing. But there is much that passes itself off as this. You might call it scientism of a certain sort. That we are purposeless and that from beginning to end. And we wonder why there's an existential crisis. That's profound, right? That we wonder why things like suicide rates in the Western world are rising, especially in America, when we're telling ourselves that we have no purpose. And the only purpose you'll find in life is one that you make up for yourself. Well, how compelling is that? But the Bible is telling us instead that no, 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 no. You were not an accident. That you are his creation. He has made you. And that there's something more profound that he has for you. You see, the whole thing about the, the idea that we were are purposeless is it just can't answer the most profound questions. Why is there something instead of nothing? It is simple and profound. Why are we here? Why is it that we can understand and make sense out of the world around us and even reflect on our own selves, our own actions in this world? If all we are is an accident. And why the profound beauty of it? Annie Dillard thinks about that question a lot in her Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Pilgrim at Tinker's Creek. Uh, this is a kind of autobiographical, year-long journal that she wrote uh, as she was exploring the nature kind of around her house uh, nearby her home and, uh, in Virginia, I think it was, if I remember correctly. Um, for a year, she kind of catalogs this, and she stops often and reflects on this. I'm going to read you this. It's a little long, but bear with me. It's worth it. Unless all ages and races of men have been deluded by the same mass hypnotist, there seems to be such a thing as beauty, a grace wholly gratuitous. About five years ago, I saw a mockingbird make a straight vertical descent from the roof gutter of a four-story building. It was, a careless and it was as careless and spontaneous as the curl of a stem or the kindling of a star. The mockingbird took a single step into the air and dropped. His wings were still folded against his side as, if, as though he were singing from a limb and not falling, accelerating at 32 feet per second per second through the air. Just the breath before he would have been dashed on the ground, he unfurled his wings with exact, deliberate care, revealing the broad bars of white, spread his elegant white banded tail, and so floated onto the grass. I had just rounded a corner when this insouciant step caught my eye, and there was no one else in sight. 
The fact of his free fall was like the old philosophical conundrum about the tree that falls in the forest. And the answer must be, I think, that beauty and grace are performed whether or not we will or sense them. The least we can do is be there. We don't know what's going on here. Our life is a faint tracing on the surface of a mystery. At the time of Lewis and Clark, setting the prairies on fire was a well-known signal that meant, come down to the water. It was an extravagant gesture, but we can't do less. If the landscape reveals one certainty, it is that the extravagant gesture is the very stuff of creation. After the one extravagant gesture of creation in the first place, the universe has continued to deal exclusively in extravagances, flinging intricacies and colossi down eons of emptiness, heaping profusions of profligacies with ever-fresh vigor. The whole show has been on fire from the word go. I come down to the water to cool my eyes, but everywhere I look, I see fire, and that which isn't flint is tinder. You get her point, don't you? The mystery of it all. Those who would convince us that our lives are purposeless can't answer these simple questions. And I say simple not because they're dumb, but because they're so obvious. And they demand an answer. Why are we here? And the Bible is telling us over and over and over again that God made you. And he made you for a reason. In fact, he adorned the whole creation for you. Not just for you, for others, but for you nonetheless. And God, look, even, even at the end of all things, when we look at, Res- at, at Revelation, what do we find in Revelation 21 and 22, but a new heavens and a new earth, one that's been renewed a creation that has been restored. And who is populating it but those who have been resurrected? Right? It is all the promises that creation had for us that are restored and renewed at the end of all things. So look, it is not, it is, this also is practical. It is not merely that God is powerful and in control of everything that's going on. God also has a purpose. And maybe you're lost without purpose. Or maybe you're young and you're not sure what your purpose is supposed to be yet. But God tells us. You remember this in in the Sermon on the Mount? Matthew 6. Jesus says, why are you anxious about so many things? He goes on and he says, look at the flowers of the field. They're dressed... They're dressed in more splendor than even King Solomon had in all of his courts. God takes care of all these things. And so what does he say? Don't be anxious. Don't be fearful. Instead, seek first the kingdom of God. And all these things will be added to you. Look, if you feel adrift this morning, there is purpose for you even here, to seek first the kingdom. And those other things will work themselves out. If you're young and you're not sure where you're going in life, seek first the kingdom of God. Because, look, 
There is nobody who has learned to love God with all their heart and soul and strength and to love their neighbor as themselves who is ever without purpose. Because your job might be unclear. Other aspects of your life might be unclear, but you will always have purpose to love others. And most of all, to love God. But I can put an even finer point on the purpose. God is powerful, he is purposeful, but his main purpose, his most important purpose, is that we would know his presence. If you'll follow this rabbit trail with me a little bit, it will pay off. But if you look, if you look through the rest of the Old Testament, you will find that creation over and over and over again is described as a dwelling place. It is described sometimes as a tent, sometimes as a great house. I'll give you a few examples. It's said to have foundations. The foundations of the earth is a common expression. It is said that the earth and the heavens have pillars, that the heavens have windows, that the heavens have been stretched like a tent, like a canopy, and that creation itself has storehouses. Now, I, by the way, I can't possibly, I've got a gigantic list of references here. Email me if you want them. But one thing you could do is read Psalm 104. Some of these references are in Psalm 104, but Psalm 104 is a reflection on creation. In fact, it's really obvious when you, if you read through it carefully that he's thinking of Genesis 1 and the creation days. Uh, it would be a good exercise this afternoon if you have time. Psalm 104 is one of these places that this shows up. But over and over and over again, the earth is described as a house. Well, whose house? Well, think about this. When God makes for himself a house, that is the tabernacle and then later the temple, the whole way in which that's described is as a replica of the earth. So as you, come into the uh, as you come into the tabernacle, you come first to the altar. But the language about the altar is that it has peaks, like it's a mountain. In fact, in the temple, which is much bigger, it's huge. You actually have, have to climb up it on stairs. It is enormous, right? It is like a mountain. And then you washed up in the basin that was behind that, which is routinely referred to as the sea. So the whole of the outer court is like a replica of the earth. And then you would step in, or you wouldn't. <laughs> the priest would go into the temple or the tabernacle proper, and the priest could go in and out of the first room, the holy place. And you know what was there? You know what it looked like? There were tables set with bread. Initially, it was manna. That, was, that came down from heaven, from the sky. In the backdrop, the curtain that separated the back room was blue and purple, like the night sky. And the lampstand that stood in front of it, up into the air, was designed like a tree, but of course, in the low light of it, it was like stars against the background. And there's plenty of ancient Jewish writers that also made this analogy. So it was as if you had gone up into the sky. And then one person, once a year, the high priest, would go behind that curtain 
into the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God dwelled. And the Ark is called on a number of occasions his footstool. It is as if you had entered into heaven itself, into the throne room. And the whole place is filled with gold. Everything in there is gold. It's beautiful. So God, when he, gives a, when he builds a small house for himself, it looks like the earth. Are you getting the picture? The whole way, the whole, God's whole intention in building creation <laughs> was to dwell with us, was for it to be the place of his dwelling. And in fact, and we will look more at this next week, we'll think more about the image of God in detail next week, but what does he do? Like every great king, he puts his image all around his palace. Except instead of a statue that was just a reminder, he has a living image, a living being. That is his image. And their job in 2.15, the next chapter, is said to work and keep this garden. And when those two Hebrew words are used together, they are always used to describe serving and guarding in the temple, how the priests would serve and guard in the temple. And what is one of their tasks but to fill the earth and subdue it so that the whole world would be the garden of God? So that God's presence would fill the whole world. And guess where we see that again? At the end of all things, in Revelation 21 and 22, Again, with the new heavens and the new earth, what is it? It is a cube like that most holy place behind the temple, and it's filled with gold. It's all gold, right? Because that's what it's like when you step into God's room. The gold on the streets isn't about you being rich. It's about the richness of God's presence. And it's, all, it's also all a garden lined with the tree of life. Right? The whole of creation is meant to be a place where God is present with his people. That is the whole goal of it. In fact, if we go to the end, go to Revelation 21, this is what we're told. We see the new heavens and the new earth. And then a loud voice from the throne says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor any pain anywhere, for the former things have passed away. God intends to be near us. And the most profound thing about this whole story, as it's going to unfold, the whole story of the Bible, the whole story of the universe, is that God didn't just hit reset when, thing, when we messed things up. Instead, what did he do? He entered in. He fixed it from the inside. He took on flesh. Do you remember the beginning of the Gospel of John? I'm sure so, a lot of you know it. In the beginning, boy, that sounds familiar. In the beginning was the Word, meaning Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. 
In him was life. And that life was the light of men. The light shines into the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then a little bit later he says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. See, the most profound thing about this story is not merely that God is powerful and purposeful, but that his intention is that we would be in his presence, that we would enjoy being with him forever. And the way he goes about doing that is by entering in, is by taking the worst of what we had made of this creation, by suffering and dying, by taking on the frailty that we had brought on ourselves. And to be raised up. We're supposed to be drawn into his presence. Does that seem boring? It might. I think we're tempted to think it's boring. I think when we have forgotten that we will be raised from the dead, we've forgotten that it is all taking place in this new creation, we think we're just going to be some disembodied souls floating around like some kind of Bugs Bunny cartoon out there. And that's not it at all. But here's the deal. It's not just that, oh boy, it'll be cool and you'll have, like maybe you'll finally be able to see those amazing (laughs) wonders of creation that you don't have time to maybe now. But that God himself will be the most compelling thing about the whole of the new creation. And the reason that that is captivating is because we have forgotten who he is. And all I can say is look around. Is the God who spread the Sahara Desert boring? Is the God who painted the green countryside of Ireland boring? That sounds like someone boring to you. Who, who Who carved the Marianas Trench The God who thought of chiseled out the Grand Canyon. Boring? For real? It can't be boring. Who thought of, you know, fall in the deciduous forests of the Northeast? Who drew with his finger the inlets and the eddies of the low country? Is this God boring? How could that possibly be? How could God be boring if he thought of the alligator and the eagle? If he thought of a golden retriever and the elephant? Right? How could God possibly be boring who thought of all of the wildflowers? How could he possibly be boring? And look, if that's not enough, if God's artistry and creation isn't enough to convince you that you would want to be with him forever, then what about his artistry when he took on flesh? What about the beautiful life that he lived in our place? What about his heart that laid down his life for you and me? Who understood the agony of this sin-sick world who endured the suffering and temptations of it, who was cut off from the Father for our sake. Somebody who loves you that well 
Isn't that someone you want to spend eternity with? Isn't that someone that even now you want to draw near to? Let's pray. Father, your creation is a profound mystery. You are a greater artist than we could ever dream of. Your power is greater than our minds can comprehend. Your purposes never fail. But most of all, your presence is our hope and our home. So we pray that you would drive the depths of your love into our hearts by your Spirit through the grace of Jesus that all might be prayer and praise to you. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.